0: five-part series, the first first night we spent establishing that canon and covenant go hand in hand. I'm going to come back to that idea um, as well tonight, and then we talked about the Old Testament canon, and last week we talked about why the Apocrypha should not be included in the Old Testament canon. Now tonight, um, <clears throat> in Which Bible, Which Jesus, part four is about the New Testament canon. As I had originally uh, intended the series to go, New Testament canon should have been last week and tonight about individual New Testament books, but uh, there was just too much to say and uh, you all weren't listening fast enough, so (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding, of course, but tonight's the New Testament canon and then next week, um, which Jesus, uh, it will be about the historical Jesus uh, and particularly, you know, did Jesus really say that? Because a lot of times the attack nowadays on the Word of God is uh, whether or not uh, Jesus did say or could have said a lot of what uh, is ascribed to him in the Gospels. And uh, you and I look at the Bible and we say, well, it's in red letters, Jesus must have said it, but uh, you know, some people just aren't convinced. Um, but so tonight's about the New Testament canon. Um <clears throat> Let me start by, uh, by making a, a, a statement, perhaps a, a, a slogan you could put. Well, this is too long to be on a bumper sticker, but uh, we could say this. The church did not define the canon. The canon defined the church. And I'm, I'm going to explore that to some degree here tonight. Um, uh, and you'll see why in a little bit, but I'll, I'll foreshadow it somewhat here These days, you know, people are cynical enough to say things like uh, the history gets written by the winners, Uh, and a lot of times what you're going to encounter on the internet or on PBS or the History Channel or whatever it is, uh, whatever thing you see about Jesus uh, in modern media in the mainstream these days. Uh, is going to make claims about why the Bible is the way it is, and they will often say the winners are the guys who chose what books went into the Bible. And uh, I- I'm going to show you how that's not the case uh, tonight, hopefully. But uh, <clears throat> let's start by, by reprising what we had already said uh, in the last couple of weeks, and that is you recall that I started with the idea... That uh, a canon, that is a, a group of documents that are regarded as authoritative, that shouldn't be changed and shouldn't be added to, is something that actually comes out of the canon of scripture itself. It comes out of God's dealings with his people. And when God makes a covenant, when he establishes a relationship between a group of people and himself, he establishes documents for that covenant. And we said that in Old Testament Israel, uh, the covenant was the law and then ultimately the, the prophets and the writings uh, were part of the Old Testament canon. When we come to the New Testament, once, uh, once Jesus has ascended and, and been seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, the apostles set about the work of carrying on what we would call the Great Commission, where he said, "Go and go and teach uh, and tell them to obey everything that I have commanded you." Sounds a whole lot like the old covenant, doesn't it? Sounds a whole lot like the new covenant, doesn't it? And this is why, uh, <clears throat> when Paul and other missionaries went out to various places in the in the Greco Roman world, they would, uh, at least in Paul's case, they would go and find. Uh, a group of uh, of Jewish people at a synagogue, if one existed, or a, a place where people gathered to pray, and they would preach Jesus to them, but they would use the Old Testament to preach Jesus to them. Now, of course, why would that be? Well, because there wasn't a New Testament yet. Uh, <laughs> you know, in other words. Uh <clears throat> Uh, they had they had the Bible, and the Bible was what we would call the Old Testament. They had the the Hebrew Scriptures translated into Greek. And as they as they went forward carrying this message from place to place, they would operate on that authority and precedent. And so, if they are working with that state of affairs, that is that we have the the documents of the covenant that God made with Israel, and we're preaching to you something that Jesus told us to preach then it makes sense that there was a canonical consciousness from the beginning. That is, <clears throat> a sense that the message that they were carrying was one imbued with divine authority. So where does, a, where does authority lie? And I suppose that's a, that's a big question. We can't really answer all of what it means to uh, uh, of the sources of authority. Uh, but this is another one of the reasons why we have difficulty, uh, we as Protestants, over against the historic Catholic Church because the Catholic Church had always claimed we're the ones who determined we, meaning the church. The church are the ones who determines the canon. That's where the, the authority comes from, the church, and they're the ones who determine the canon. And that sort of plays into modern uh, skepticism about, uh, about how it came to pass. What I'm going to tell you, though, is the other way around, is that the documents themselves had authority. But where do they start? Where does the authority start? Well, the authority starts, of course, with the authoritative teaching of Jesus that we find now recorded in the Gospels. You recall what Jesus says in places like the uh, Sermon on the Mount, for instance. Jesus says, you've you've heard it said, but I say to you. And uh, you've heard it written. It stands written, but I say to you. And uh, <clears throat> there are various points along the way in the Gospels where you where you see notes about how people respond to Jesus, and they're scratching their heads, if you will, saying, "Well, wait a minute, this guy is teaching as though he has authority or something." Um, well, fancy that! Well, actually, he does. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, so, uh, you know, if, you know, like what they say. It's not bragging if you can really do it. Um, well, that's, you know, that's Jesus. I mean, he he really does have authority, so he's not bragging. He's just telling the truth, saying, I, I, I've come as as God incarnate to tell you how to get to the Father, and here's my message, and they said, what? Uh, some of them said, what? And, and the disciples said, huh? You know, um, that's in the Western text somewhere, uh, but uh, as as the church age began uh, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the church as it was then uh, assembled. The apostles, the the twelve who had been commissioned by Jesus Himself, took that teaching and went forward with it. They, with the aid of the Spirit, you read John seventeen, well, John thirteen through seventeen, but especially John uh, sixteen. John 17, uh, the promise that the Spirit would be uh, at their aid to remind them of everything that he had told them, for instance. The apostles carried that teaching forward into uh, the church age. Now, let me kind of, uh, if, you, if you will allow me to overview uh, about a century of history here uh, <clears throat> with the composition of the New Testament. And uh, we start with uh, 33 A.D. and move our way forward to about 96 A.D. Now, the reason we start in 33 A.D. is that's when Jesus uh, was crucified and rose from the dead. The first Easter was April 5th, 33 A.D. Not 30, 33. Um, And so next time uh, you're trying to, to ordain somebody, uh, ask them what date they think the crucifixion was. If they say it's 30, just stop right there and say, no way. No, there, there, is, there is some discussion about whether it's 30 or 33. Those are usually the, the two dates that get argued about. 33 is the, the best of those. Um, if you're interested, read Harold Honer's Chronological Aspects of the Apostolic Age. Um, probably a little too much information, I think, for some people, but uh, very interesting work. So uh, 33 is where we start. We end in 96. That's about when uh, the emperor Domitian died. And so that marks the end of the New Testament period because uh, we know that John wrote Revelation uh, during Domitian's reign. So 96 is the is the very latest in which uh, a New Testament book could have been written. Now uh, allow me to just kind of throw these banners up. Um, 50 is about the demarcation line for the uh, for the composition of the gospels and i start that line actually back in 33 AD because the publication of these works probably took place a lot, uh, uh, maybe around 50 or so for Matthew and Mark uh <clears throat> and uh you know people disagree on which one was the first one written and so on we can put Luke acts uh uh, around the early 60s, uh, and that's because uh, Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome in 64. So you can't you can't have uh, Acts written any time before or uh, sorry after 64. And uh, so the bulk of the New Testament is written between 50 and 70 AD. These are approximate uh, uh, dates. Uh, Paul writes his uh, 13 letters to churches, uh, James writing slightly before Paul perhaps, and it's kind of hard to know where to put John in this, in this continuum. I could have drawn the line for John all the way back to 33 AD, but chances are uh, he writes his gospel and uh, his letters late in this period. Now the reason 70 AD is a, is a line here is the destruction of Jerusalem. And the reason that's such a, uh, an important date is that uh, <clears throat> the New Testament is strangely silent about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, of course, there are there, there is the Olivet Discourse. There's Mark's uh, 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 discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem. There's uh, Luke's discussion of this in, in Luke 19. But there's nothing in the New Testament that says, See, it happened just like he said it would. And, and so, even though this is somewhat of an argument from silence, the very loud silence, in other words, the, the New Testament writers, if, if they had been writing after 70 A.D., would have said, Jesus told us this would happen, and it happened exactly the way he told us it would happen. So, the fact that the New Testament is silent about 70 A.D., except for prophecies from Jesus, means that most of the New Testament, if not all of it, was written before 70 A.D., so this is why I'm leaving open the possibility of John having written uh, before 780. There's some other, uh, some other details to deal with there, but perhaps Revelation written late in that period as well. Um, again, there, uh, uh, everything I've said here could be rearranged depending on what we say about individual books. But uh, th- this period between 33 AD and 96 AD is the time in which the apostles were committing what Jesus had told them to writing. Now, why is the canon closed with the death of John the Apostle? Uh, I'm front loading this discussion so that once we get to the modern objections to it, you'll be ready. Okay, so I'll talk about what the uh, uh, <clears throat> the wackiness that's left the ivory tower and it's on the shelves of Borders books uh, or at Amazon.com. I'll talk about those in a little bit. Um, but when we read uh, Jude verses three and four, there's only one chapter in Jude, so you just say Jude three and four, right? Verses three and four. Uh, one of the, as Chuck Swindoll would put it, postcards of the New Testament. Uh, we read Jude in Jude three and four about the faith once delivered to all, to the saints. And uh, the word faith in that context refers to a settled body of doctrine. And if, if Jude's written around 70 A.D., somewhere around there, uh, then we have a canon con- uh, consciousness already there as well. There's also a theological reason. God's revelation of himself in the present age with respect to doctrine is complete in the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1.2 and the apostolic witness. Uh, Hebrews has this wonderful beginning about God speaking in many different ways but then speaking finally to us in the person of his son. There's also a historical reason uh, why the canon is closed and that is there's no longer an apostolic office to validate the writings. If we still had apostles on the scene then uh, new stuff could be written, and the apostle could say, yep, or nope. But as it is, there are no more apostles. With all due deference to the to the Roman Catholic tradition, there is no succession of apostles. Uh, let me make my point as well from the book of Acts. Uh, have you read the book of Acts recently? Perhaps you have. Um And actually, you'd have to go back into the book of Luke to to really catch the flow of this. But you know that Judas killed himself shortly before uh, Jesus was crucified. And then after uh, Pentecost, the early church, the apostles said, you know, we were supposed to be 12, but now there's only 11 of us, basically. This is my paraphrase of a big chunk of the book of Acts. Uh, There's only 11 of us, but we need 12 because we're representing well, the 12 tribes of Israel were representing the continuity of Jesus to, to Israel, and we need to take this message, so we need another guy. And so they said, well, you know, it's going to have to be a guy who's been with us since the beginning, somebody who knows, knows us, knows Jesus, uh, whom we can trust to carry this uh, commission forward. And they settled on a couple of candidates, and then it turns out Mattahias was the guy who was chosen by Lot. Uh, <clears throat> now, I don't think we should make too much of the fact that Mattaheus disappears from the narrative after that. Some people have said, well, you see, he disappears. This means the early church was just all wrong at, at saying, let's, let's find a replacement. It's just No, It's the, Luke had 32 feet of papyrus, and he wanted to talk about Peter in chapters 1 through 8 uh, and, and following, and then about Paul who dominates the latter part of the book of Acts. So really Acts should be called, not the Acts of the Apostles, it should be called the Acts of a Couple of Apostles with a Few Others were Thrown In. I mean, really, I, I, I'm, I, I'm making light of the title, but the title wasn't inspired, so I can make light of that. Um, uh, so, so the fact that Luke focuses on, uh, on Paul, the fact that he focuses on Peter, doesn't me, doesn't invalidate the choice of Mattias as a replacement but now here my here's my point about replacements once James the son of Zebedee is killed in chapter 12 of Acts by Herod there's no replacement for him okay so so there's a there's a huge peg here to that argument that says there's no more apostolic succession there aren't any apostles anymore because none of these guys have been, com- none of the people who make the claim to be apostles have actually been commissioned by Jesus or the people that Jesus commissioned. You with me here? Okay, now it's terribly important because for something to be considered scripture, canonical, inspired, it has to come from an apostle. And I'll show you why. The, why what we have in the New Testament has actually been thoroughly vetted. So what do you, you know? What do you say to your uh, uh, what do you say to your friends who say, "Well, how do you know? I mean, how do you really know, one hundred percent, that that these books are uh, are from God?" You know, and they'll say, "Oh, oh, I know. Don't no. Stop. Let me tell you. It's because God says so, right?" You know, they'll make fun of you. And, uh, and and some of us have played into that. You know, we say, uh, we say things in front of unbelievers that should only be said in front of believers. You know, God said it. Uh, I believe it. That settles it. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, okay. That works. It, you know, that works in this group. But out there, it doesn't work. Okay? Because there's plenty of kooks running around who say, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And God didn't say it. And they don't understand it, if God did say it. Uh, Well, okay, you know, they come out of the woodwork all all the time, don't they? Well, okay, so there's no longer any apostolic witness going on, nothing active. We have only their witness in the word. Uh, And so only they and their circle had access to Jesus. And this has been Christian belief since the earliest centuries. Uh, Other traditions notwithstanding, this has been the, the position of Christians, From the very beginning. Okay, so how do you really know? Well, first of all, I want to say that the 27 books you have in your New Testament have been thoroughly vetted. In other words, they've been argued over for 2,000 years, and every time they come out on top. I mean, you take even the most disputed book in the New Testament, something like 2 Peter, for instance. And you, you put it up against any other book that, that was ever considered for membership, if you will. Um, I'm kind of saying this anachronistically as though there could have been other books considered. But there were other books that people thought should be included. And you put those up against Second Peter. And there's a great gulf fixed, to use Luke's terms, between those uh, that you would see if you just took some time to look at this. Now I also want to point out, though, that this is a supernatural process. If the Spirit inspired the Scriptures, and He makes sure that it, that they get preserved, He also makes sure that we know which ones belong. And so it's not the it's not the the fiat the the decree of any one person in Christian history that says this twenty seven books are the books, no others. It's been a collective work of God the Holy Spirit moving in God's people to, to, uh, to confirm to God's people what God's book should be. Okay, we could put it that way. It's a supernatural process. Now, let me say something very important here, though, because a lot of people have missed the, missed the boat on this idea. Supernatural does not mean magical. A lot of people think when you talk when you talk about supernatural, you talk about the power of God. You know, you have to you know turn on the reverb for God. You know, Uh, as though when you mention God's name, some people should just kind of fall over, you know, or something. It's supernatural, yes, but not magical. Now, magical means you wave your hand, you, you. you know, wave a wand, you say the right words the right uh, right way, and the universe has to obey and does automatically what, <coughs> you, what you want to have happen. That's what magic is. And uh, there's a big difference between supernatural and magical, where magical is automatic. You wave your wand and out comes 27 books. Poof. There we go. How do you know? Well, I waved my wand and this is what came out. Oh, Really? How can you be sure that... You see what I mean? But when we say there's 27 books in the New Testament and these can all be demonstrated to have come from authorized agents of Jesus and they have been used from the earliest generations of the church as scripture, then we can say, oh yeah, that's true. Now, It shouldn't bother you that we have to look back in history to confirm it. So there is a human process of research involved. But it's not historical inquiry on its its own that's involved here. We're talking about the church seeking the will of God, seeking the power of God, uh, to see that the New Testament is what it should be. In other words, have we... Have we accidentally left something out, or do we have something in there that shouldn't be in there? Okay, and that's that's what that process was, as the early church worked their way through this. Now, when we read what the early church started to say about the New Testament, here I'm talking about the period between the uh, between AD thirty three. Uh, or between 8070 or 8096 and AD 350 or so, let's just kind of kind of put a, a time frame on this. Between the end of the first century and the first quarter of the fourth century, when we look at what the early church are doing to vet these 27 books, we find that what they're doing, is they're using a, a set of criteria to defend their use. Now, the, what they are not doing, by the way, is they're not saying, hey, we need some books for our New Testament canon. Let's see, what criteria can we come up with to gather enough writings, you know, because we need 27 books? You no, know, it's not that. What they're doing is they're saying, you know, we know God had uh, God in the first century had the apostles write what he wanted them to, okay. Now, how can we make sure we've got the right collection? Because by the time we get to the fourth century, there are a bunch of other people saying, "Well, now this was written by an apostle. That was written by an apostle. Hey, this is spiritually edifying. Shouldn't we read this publicly in church?" And so, this is the kind of thing that that uh, we had to deal with in the in the early centuries of the church. So let me go through these criteria. Uh, the first one is apostolicity. That just means did it come from an apostle? Okay, but see these all have to be nouns. So apostolicity. Okay, did it come from an apostle? Okay, that's the that's the that's the kind of central and most important criterion uh, of all. Now, uh, if you're astute, you're thinking, well, what about? What about Luke? okay now first of all uh, let me just kind of also back up just a little bit. you know that all four gospels are anonymous right In other words you don't read anywhere in the Gospel of Mark that says I Mark, the son of the guy who was in the you know no we have no identification for the author none of the uh, none of the Gospels actually come out and say, Who wrote them? Not even the Gospel of John, by the way. Now, there's some internal hints that it's the the disciple whom Jesus loved, but still, there's nothing direct uh, that says these actually came from these these people. So, the church tradition has to has to assign authorship to them, but it's very early that that tradition goes right back to the beginning. now, that's distinct from, say, Paul's writings where Paul says, I, Paul, I'm writing to this group of people or that group of people and so on. Uh, <clears throat> now, that's important because there were some uh, letters uh, that were forged, some books that were forged as though they came from Paul and they really didn't yeah, that, the, that the church uh, rejected. There's something else as well. In, in a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll be talking about the Gospel of Thomas, for instance. And you see, the, the early church said it's important that something comes from an apostle, but they weren't so focused on that that they were ready to lie about it. So they were happy to say that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark and that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. But, of course, Mark was part of the first generation of believers, probably got a lot of his information from Peter. And Luke was part of the earliest generations of believers, although he himself wasn't an eyewitness. He says he did research. He got his information from the apostolic circle. And so his work has the stamp of approval of the apostolic circle on it. So ultimately... It doesn't actually have to come from the pen of an apostle. It has to come from the apostolic circle. Are you with me here? Okay. So works that, aren't, that are anonymous like the Gospels can still satisfy this criterion about apostolicity. Now, Catholicity doesn't mean they're Catholic as in Roman Catholic, but Catholicity, um, any of you come from a liturgical background where you, where you recite the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so on. And you get to that one passage in, the, in that creed where you say, I believe in the holy Catholic church. And, you know, we as Protestants are going, what are we doing saying Catholic church there? But that, that's, uh, by the way, it should be lowercase c. Uh, um, There's some typos when people put that in a bulletin, but it should be lowercase c. Catholic just simply means, it, it actually comes from a Greek word. It means, uh, It means universal. So when we, you, when we talk about, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're talking about the Universal Church. Um, we probably won't be reciting the Apostles' Creed next Sunday, so just so you know. Uh, but I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. So Catholicity means is it applicable to the Church as a whole? Okay. So so even though Paul's letters are written to individual churches, uh, they're applicable to the Church as a whole. Now there are some writings of Paul that that didn't survive. Uh, probably because Paul didn't want them to. And we talked about that uh, last time. We talked about First you know, and Second Corinthians being two of the letters that survived the exchange between uh, Paul and the Corinthians. Orthodoxy, uh, of course, I- is it right teaching? Does it cohere with what was said in the Old Testament about Jesus? Does it cohere with what the apostles have been saying? And basically, uh, the center of orthodoxy, of course, is your Christology. Do you believe that Jesus was really a man and really God and that he really came and that he really died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and th- and that forgiveness should be preached in his name to all the nations? That kind of summary of, of apostolic teaching would be used to, uh, to confirm whether a book belonged in that circle. Now, orthodoxy is kind of a uh, – it's used kind of negatively. In other words uh, – We look at, uh, you look at some of these other books that people claimed and you would say, well, this book doesn't cohere with that doctrine, so it should be rejected on that basis. It's not orthodox. Uh, Established usage. Does it go back all the way to the first generations of believers? Were they using it in church? You know, if you had a Johnny come lately in the second century, you'd go, hmm. I'm not really sure if that's if that's from one of the apostles. Maybe it's not from the apostles. If it suddenly shows up in Egypt and it's never been used in Greece or Rome or Ephesus or any of these other places, see, when when, when the historians of the early church did their homework and went and asked these people in different areas of the of the Roman Empire, I said hey, do you guys know about this book? Some of them, they would say, no, we've never heard of that book. Or we, they'd say, oh, yeah, we've heard of that book, but we don't read that one in church. Uh, so established usage means does it go back to the first churches as they were established by the apostolic circle? Now, if a, if a book meets all of those criteria, then you can say it's inspired. Isn't that funny? You'd you'd think uh, you and I think of it the other way around. We go, well, God inspired the Scripture, and then, yeah, well, that's true. But you think about this: anyone can claim to be inspired. I mean, there's other religions that claim that their prophet was uh, inspired, and uh, and that they got their information from God. You can't start with inspiration. You have to start with you have to start with Jesus Christ, and you have to start with, was this person commissioned, and so on. So inspiration is something decided about uh, an item that goes into the canon after the fact, if you will. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't inspired to start with. It had to have been inspired to start with to meet all these criteria, right? It's not as though we're looking back and saying, oh, well, now, now you know, it's finally considered in- inspired. Uh, as as though someone can look back on your life and declare you a saint, you know, several decades after your death. Okay, so uh, so again, here's the period from 33 to 96 AD is the period in which uh, uh, a a an inspired, orthodox, uh, apostolic, and universally applicable book can be written that could be considered canonical. Now, what happens after 96, even before 96 and on into the fourth century? Persecution. You know, the Roman church, the, the Roman authorities are trying to figure out, in the book of Acts, the Roman authorities are trying to figure out whether Christianity is really just, like, part of Judaism. And and the, and the Roman authorities are all just saying, scratching their head and going, you know, this guy Paul, these guys the Pharisees, yeah, you guys you guys work that on on your own. You know, the Roman authorities only get involved when there's corruption involved. Have, have you noticed that in the book of Acts? They really shouldn't be involved and the ones who actually follow correct procedure all say, well, that's a religious dispute. You guys settle that among yourselves. The only reason the Romans get involved is, of course, because the, uh, because of corruption. Now, later on, After the end of the 1st century and on into the 2nd century, the Roman authorities are still asking that question. And uh, then persecution begins, first sporadically and then later uh, on into the 3rd century, especially the 3rd century. On into the first part of the 4th century, there's persecution. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But so here's our problem. There were lots of religious books written in the 1st and 2nd century that could have functioned as scripture how did, how did the new testament take on its present shape or another way we can ask that question is why is determining the can- the shape of the canon the trajectory of the canon in the first 4 centuries important well let me show you this here's now uh, uh, make sure you write all of this down exactly the way it is because there's a quiz at the end now, uh, now this is just a list don't try to get this down all you got, you can look up any of these lists on on Wikipedia, okay? The more esoteric a Wikipedia article is, the more likely it is to be accurate because you know, like the one guy who knows something about it will probably write the article there. All you got to do is look up canon lists on Wikipedia. You'll get a list like this. Okay, look at the dates on these, though. They're all in the 4th and 5th century. Now, why is that? Now, the Muratorian canon, I'm going to read you a couple of little slices of the Muratorian canon in a minute. Muratorian Canon dates probably to the second century, although like everything I've been saying about the dating of some of these things can be can be disputed. But the second century, a second century, maybe uh, maybe very early third century dating for the Muratorian Canon uh, is pretty well the consensus view, if you will. But you look at the other uh, explicit lists of the New Testament canon, and they all date to the fourth century. Why is that? Okay, hey, you remember how there, were, there was persecution from the, from the end of the first century to the beginning of the fourth century? It ended when Constantine became emperor. Now, we can, uh, we can argue about whether he actually became a believer, but the idea is that he converted to Christianity uh, in uh, about 315. 312 is, is the date that a lot of people put onto it. But uh, about 315 or so, the early part of the 4th century, Constantine came to Christ, so to speak, and the persecution ended because at that point, Christianity became not only a legal religion, but also the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that was a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, it, was, it was kind of a good thing the persecution ended, but bad thing in that, well, the government got involved. Oh, well, anyway. Um, <laughs> Now, I, I'm not talking about the government of the United States. I'm talking about Roman government. Okay, just, just so you know, our, our tax-exempt status will remain intact. Um, all right, so Constantine became emperor in the 4th century and ended the persecution. <sighs> Why do you think the lists of, of New Testament books date to the 4th century? Uh, yes, they couldn't write the lists, and they couldn't write the books because before that they were killing Christians and burning their books, burning the lists of books. Is it any wonder then that the earliest complete manuscripts that we have of the of the New Testament date to the fourth century? See they're killing Christians and burning books up until that time, and the, the New Testaments that we found that date into the second century, second through the second third century have been found because they survived long enough in the desert in Egypt. But before that, this was the case. Now, here's why I'm making a big deal of that. Because most people will point to these early lists and say, see, we don't have any complete list of the New Testament until the 4th century. Now, here's the leap. Therefore, the New Testament canon must have been invented in the 4th century. You say, really? How do you know that? I mean, if they were killing Christians and burning their books, don't you think? Well, anyway. You see, the logic here is, okay, sure. We don't have uh, the literary evidence that we have for Christianity dates dates mostly in the 4th century. And when we try to find a book, a list of books that we could call a canon, we only find them in the 4th century. But we don't find anything else before the fourth century. So really that argument is an argument from silence. But that's exactly the line you're gonna hear and you turn on PBS, the history channel, they're gonna say, Oh yes, the New Testament canon didn't exist before the fourth century. And see the average person isn't equipped to know, well we didn't really have anything before the fourth century anyway, so, you know, what's your point? Okay, so that's what you should say. Here's your response is, what's your point? Okay. You ready? What's your point? No. Um, all right. So what what you do when you hear that statement? When you hear that spin on this whole discussion, you say, "Well, that's really not much of a point after all." But that doesn't stop most of modern scholarship from making the next claim. I'm going to mention here. What the? Now here's the here's the modern line on early Christianity. Here. So so the battle has has moved sort of from. Did Jesus really say that? To are you sure you've got the right books? To now, now the whole thing is well. <clears throat> early Christianity has kind of a a checkered past, and so here's what they'll say. They'll say early Christianity was a variety of expression. The, there were uh, there were uh, people that we could call proto-orthodox. Not, you can't call them orthodox until the fourth century. So they were proto-orthodox people, you know, people you wanna, you know, that they would call fundamentalists, perhaps. And they lived, you know, and worshipped in the same churches with other people who were later called heretics. But they lived in this peaceful coexistence. In the early centuries of Christianity, there were people who had one view of Christianity, and then there were people who had a Jesus view of Christianity. And they all just kind of got along and sang kumbaya, um, and uh, everyone got along. And what we know as orthodoxy was actually invented later, and here's how it happened. uh, Up into the 4th century, once Constantine converted to Christianity, the orthodox, the people who became orthodox, decided that it was time to stamp out all of these other alternative expressions of Christianity And so orthodoxy became orthodox by suppressing all opposing viewpoints. And that's the time in which the canon was supposedly invented to stamp out all of these other equally valid, equally inspired uh, variants of Christianity. Hmm. I can see you're not buying this, but at any rate, this is the line you're you're going to hear uh, from just about everything you pick up. If you picked up, for instance, these two books, uh, Beyond Belief by Elaine Pagels, um, <clears throat> who argues that the Gospel of John was written specifically to, review, to refute the Gospel of Thomas. That's why Thomas gets such a bad rap in the Gospel of John, you know, doubting Thomas. Okay, well, this is why he gets such a bad rap. Uh, by the way, I don't recommend this book for your devotional time. Uh, go ahead and read it if you want, I mean, uh, but I don't endorse what she says. There. Or uh, uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, Lost Christianities, uh, the, the subtitle is even more telling, The Battle for Scripture and the Faiths We Never Knew. You know, those those other faiths that were stamped out by the Orthodox, those nasty fundamentalists. Uh <clears throat> Well, it's books like these, and, and Bart Ehrman in particular is a, a particularly prolific writer on subjects like this. And the, uh, uh, folks like this will point to documents uh, like these, the ones found uh, in a place in Egypt called Nag Hammadi. Uh, Nag Hammadi uh, is, is in upper what they call Upper Egypt. We go, well, way that looks like it's in Southern Egypt. But you go up as you go south in, in Egypt. So there's Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. Uh, it's a, it looks like from this map it's about 250 miles south of Cairo, Nag Hammadi. So a guy named Muhammad Ali, not the boxer, uh, who in 1945, uh, he and, he and uh, uh, another family member were digging for fertilizer and discovered uh, an, a very large uh, uh, jar. And uh, when they broke it, uh, when they finally got enough courage to break it, they were afraid maybe a genie might be in it. Um, <laughs> they finally broke it and uh, out came gold flakes, they said. Uh, and then it turns out the gold flakes were just papyrus uh, and uh, papyrus, these aren't pictures of, of those documents themselves, but papyrus fragments like this and documents, books, uh, written in the Coptic language. Now, Coptic is the language of Egypt written using Greek letters instead of hieroglyphics. I guess the Egyptians finally decided, hey, we need to get a real alphabet. You know, so they started, they started writing uh, using Greek letters. Uh, and then a few others to the, just kind of fill in the gaps in, the, in their sound inventory. So if you see something that looks like it's Greek and you start trying to read it and you can't read it, it's probably cop- – but if you can't read it, well, it might be Greek, but if <coughs> if Eric back there can't read it, it's probably Coptic. Or Do you read Coptic? Well, maybe you can already. Okay, well, anyway. Uh, anyway, so, so um, Coptic is the language of Egypt, okay, and, and uh, you'll hear uh, the Christians – there who, who are not these Christians. <laughs> the Christians there are called the, the Coptic Christians because okay, they're reading the Bible in Coptic, one of the earlier translations of the New Testament. But uh, these documents that were discovered at Nag Hammadi, they're often called the Nag Hammadi documents of the Nag Hammadi Library, uh, are all uh, uh, part of a strain of what scholars call early Christianity It's called Gnosticism, and I'll explain what that is in just a minute. But uh, what what was found there were were Gnostic Gospels. I'm putting Gospels in quotes because they aren't really Gospels. They're more like like collections of sayings or so-called sayings of Jesus. Things like the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary. Do you see the appeal to apostolicity in there? You see, see what's happening is that these other groups are wanting to get their stuff included, so they're claiming apostolic uh, lineage for it. None of it goes to back to the apostles here. But in documents like these, for instance, the, the most celebrated of these is the Gospel of Thomas. Um, uh, uh, by the way, just so you know, um, even though the documents they found were in Coptic, they were probably translations from Greek because we've later found... Greek fragments that fit the Coptic documents. So we're probably talking about documents that were originally written in Greek, translated into Coptic. Um, but uh, you'll, for instance, the Gospel of Thomas 9, uh, you'll read something very similar to the, s- the parable of the sowers. Now the sower went out, took a handful of seeds, and scattered them, and so on. Now there are some significant differences. For instance, he, uh, the Gospel of Thomas mentions worms ate the seeds. Well, that's not quite what's in, in the uh, canonical Gospels, but okay, we can we can live with that. Um, and so several of the sayings in the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, uh, are, are of this kind of variety. But far more of them are of the kind of variety, the last saying in the Gospel of Thomas, I just love reading this to, to Christian audiences. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go out from among us, for women are not worthy of Jesus said, and you think, well, here comes Jesus to, to her rescue, but watch, watch what the rescue is. Jesus said, look, I will lead her that I will make her male in order that she too might become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And you say, well, gee, thanks. These guys were probably feminists, don't you think? And, you know, what's funny is we laugh at this and we go, what what a bunch of misogynists. You know, uh, well, you know what the modern scholarship now says, well, you know, we think the Gnostics were really feminists. Somebody else added this one later. (laughs) Yeah, so so anytime you try to, you know, try to characterize Gnosticism in a way that uh, would uh, paint it in a a bad light, uh, somebody always has some clever answer. Well, what is Gnosticism anyway? Well... Uh, to put it very simply, it's Platonism run wild. Uh, that's uh, the, uh, the British scholar A.D. Nock uh, said this, Platonism run wild.